This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we're interviewing Christopher Safreen. Christopher Savine retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2016 after 35 years as the grizzly bear recovery coordinator. Servine was an adjunct research associate professor in the College of Forestry and Conservation at the University of Montana from 1992 to 2018. So, Chris, uh, he, uh, he was responsible for the delisting rule for the Yellowstone grizzly population in 2007 and he drafted the delisting rule in 2016 prior to his retirement. So, Chris, welcome. Uh, you're currently the president of the board chair of the Montana Wildlife Federation. You're co-chair of the North American Bears Expert Team for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Are those fairly prominent jobs that you got? Well, they're not really jobs. Both of those things are volunteer positions, so uh, I don't get paid for them, but I do them to try to help bears. Uh, so your career has been spent with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and you've retired as a bear recovery coordinator. Uh, what did you do before you went to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service? Well, I, I graduated from college with a Ph.D. on grizzly bears in the Mission Mountains in um, 1981, and um, in, immediately got hired by the Fish and Wildlife Service as the recovery coordinator for grizzly bears. Uh-huh. So it's uh, it's been a fairly long career. Have you have you made friends with some grizzlies? Well, grizzlies don't want to be friends with people. They they want to be left alone. So I don't think I've made friends with them. I try to. Uh, uh, try to help them out and uh, make sure that humans are doing the right things in bear habitat so that we have fewer conflicts with bears and therefore more bears. Uh-huh. And uh, when did you first become involved with the grizzlies? Uh, right at the outset of your your job as bear recovery coordinator? Well, I did my Ph.D. on grizzly bears starting in 1975 until 1981. And... Uh, so I worked in the Mission Mountains on grizzly bears, trying to figure out what the bears were doing in the Mission Mountains, what their food habits were, and assist the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribe in developing a management plan for grizzly bears in the Mission Mountains. So I started in 1975 on grizzly bears. So was the job as bear recovery coordinator involved? Well, uh, as recovery coordinator, my job was to coordinate all the research and management on grizzly bears in the four states where grizzly bears existed, which is Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Washington, and then to work with colleagues in British Columbia and Alberta because along the U.S.-Canadian border, we share um, grizzly bears as bears have dual citizenship. What did you learn about bear behavior in that job? Well, the job was to try to implement the recovery plan, and the recovery plan laid out a series of tasks that we could implement to recover the grizzly bear. So things that were related to improving habitat security for bears, like closing motorized access in certain areas, improving sanitation, so 
eliminating open pit garbage dumps and garbage availability to bears, reducing mortality, educating the public how they could live with and recreate in grizzly bear habitat with minimum conflicts, reducing issues that cause bears to get into trouble like dirty backcountry camps or livestock numbers in grizzly bear important range. All those things were done simultaneously to reduce mortalities, improve habitat security. And um, by knowing about bears, we could implement that. But a lot of the work was not about bears. It was about humans and trying to get humans to do different things and agencies to do different things so that we could have more successful grizzly bear populations across the landscape. Did you work mostly in Montana or were you uh, in several states as well? No, I was in the four states of Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Washington. So I was responsible for all four states, and I spent a lot of time in adjacent areas in Canada as well. So a lot of traveling between the four states in Alberta and British Columbia and working with people and agencies in all those places. What did you learn about bear behavior while you were doing all this? Well, bears are very successful at getting by as long as humans don't put attractions in bear habitat that get bears into trouble. And, um, you know, bears are adaptable. They're successful on the landscape as long as we don't kill them and as long as we don't provide all kinds of conflicts for them where we are. So the challenge of the work is to balance the needs of bears with the needs of people across the landscape. And that's what I did. What's the reproductive rate among grizzlies? Well, grizzlies have one of the lowest reproductive rates of any land mammal in North America. Females don't start breeding until they're about five years old, and then they have cubs every three years, and they have an average of two cubs per litter. And, you know, they live, the average lifespan is maybe 15 to 20 years for an adult female. So during her lifetime, she may have four or five litters of two cubs Uh each. And, you know, half of those are females. And about half of the cubs die before they become adults. So it's a very low replacement rate. And they, because of that, grizzly bears have low resiliency to human-caused mortality. What's the food source for grizzlies? Well, grizzly bears are, are what we call opportunistic omnivores. The majority of their diet is vegetation and insects. So they eat berry shrubs and things like huckleberries and berry fruits when they're available. They eat green uh, forbs and grasses early in the spring when they first come up. Um, they eat a lot of uh, leafy ve- leafy forb vegetations, um, doing a lot of grazing on things. Um, they occasionally will will eat dead animals uh-huh. when they find carrion. They're pretty ineffective carnivores. Um, they don't kill much on their own. They'll sometimes dig out ground squirrels or um, if a... Uh, uh, an ungulate is, say, injured in the, like a, a bull elk might be injured in the rut. It might be hard to, for the animal to run. It might be weak and the bear might catch it. But most of the, the time, grizzly bears don't kill things on their own. Um, they do occasionally kill animals, but most of their diet, about 80 to 90% of their diet, is vegetation and insects. Oh, they're vegetarians, huh? <laughs> So most of their diet is vegetarian and a lot of insects. They eat ants and grubs and things like that that they find in rotting trees and uh-huh. logs. Do they truly hibernate in the wintertime or are they just dormant? They truly hibernate. Yes, they truly hibernate. Their heart rate goes down. Their body temperature goes down. 
Uh, hibernation is a an adaptation that bears have to avoid having to be out all winter looking for food when their food is really difficult to find. Remember, you know, so much of their diet is vegetation and insects. Right. And in the northern Rockies, that's all under the snow. So bears can avoid searching for food during that time period when vegetation and insects are not very available by going into the den and sleeping. And they rely on fat stores that they've built up during their period of activity. They usually stop eating about October or so. They go into the den, and during their time in their den, they don't eat, drink, urinate, or defecate. Wow. So for that period of four to five months, they're just pretty inactive. Their heart rate is slowed down, and that's the time the females have the cubs in January while they're in the den. So the cubs will be born, and then she'll start nursing the cubs. And even during that time, she's not eating or drinking. She's just relying on her fat reserves. No kidding. Then that produces milk. For the cubs, huh? Right. Yeah. She produces uh, milk for the cubs. They're born. They're about a pound or so when they're born. By the time they come out of the den with their mother, they may be 8 to 10 pounds. And uh, that might be in April or so. And then they begin their life following their mother around, and they stay with their mother for two full seasons um, where she teaches them how to find food, where to go to look for different foods, what to avoid. Um, uh, and, you know, they essentially have a culture that is a transmitted knowledge that goes from generation to generation. And so females transmit their knowledge about how to live, where to find food, what to avoid to their cubs. So the cubs are, you know, by following their mother, they learn how to be bears and where to, where to survive and what to eat on the landscape. So uh, you were involved in the listing of the grizzly as an endangered species. Uh, when did that first occur? No, I was not involved in the listing. The listing actually took place in 1975, before I was working for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh-huh. And when I started in 1981, my job was to implement the recovery plan, but the bear was already listed at that point. And it was listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. So a threatened species is one that is likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future. And an endangered species is one that is likely to become extinct. So the grizzly bear was listed as a threatened species, not endangered. And uh, that was in the lower 48 United States in 1975. What was the moving force that brought that about? Well, the fact that grizzly bears were gone from probably 98% of their habitat in the lower 48 states. Uh And the real issue that brought it to the public's attention was the grizzly bear situation in Yellowstone National Park. Mm. So a little history on that. In the parks, both Glacier and Yellowstone, the Park Service used to dump garbage inside the parks from all the um, lodges and hotels and that type of thing. And rather than take it out of the park, they dumped it in the park. And... Of course, bears are attracted to garbage, and so you had grizzly bears and black bears eating garbage inside Yellowstone Park. This was going on for a long time, and in 1967, something happened, and that is that on the same night, two different women were killed in two different places in Glacier National Park by grizzly bears, and both of those grizzly bears were bears that had been eating garbage inside the park. And that prompted the Park Service to reconsider the idea of dumping garbage 
Ginsite Park and allowing all these bears to eat garbage. And so they began to close the dumps, and there was concern that if they closed the dumps in a place like Yellowstone, that the bears wouldn't be able to survive. And with the closures of the dumps would come the extinction of the grizzly bear. And so that starting of the closing of the dumps in the early 70s was the reason that grizzly bears were eventually listed in 1975 as a threatened species. There were very few left. They were in very limited areas, only about 2% of their former range. And uh, we didn't know a lot about them. And it was thought that, you know, this was a perfect species to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. And thus, um, we have what we have today. So what's the process involved in in the listing? Uh, does Fish and Wildlife do a census? And were they doing that at that time? And they just uh, determined that, the species was threatened? No, there's no census. Listing or delisting requires what's called a five-factor analysis in the, the Endangered Species Act. And those five factors, essentially for grizzly bears, they boil down to the, is there enough habitat available or are there threats to the habitat? Uh-huh. Things like road density and, you know, roads on the landscape, forestry activities, livestock grazing. And are there enough bears out there? The numbers such that the bears can sustain themselves. And finally, the important issue for grizzly bears is the regulatory mechanisms that exist to control mortality and to manage habitat. Were there regulatory mechanisms in play in 1975 to meet the needs of the grizzly bear? And that analysis led to the conclusion that, in fact, there were not adequate regulatory mechanisms in place. There were threats to the habitat, and the numbers were very, very low. And with those three things determined, the bear was listed in 1975 as a threatened species. So after working with grizzlies for a number of years, you decided recovery had occurred and you advocated delisting. What brought that about? Well, the objective of the the Endangered Species Act is to get listed species to the point at which protection under the Endangered Species Act is no longer required. So the objective is to delist. And when the bear is listed, we wrote what's called a recovery plan, and that recovery plan outlines all the things we need to do to get the bear populations in better shape, improve the habitat, and to put regulatory mechanisms in, in place. And so from 1981 until, um, uh, what, 2007 or so, we had completed most of the tasks and the plan, and the numbers of grizzly bears in places like the Yellowstone ecosystem were in pretty good shape. There were regulatory mechanisms in place and good management about habitat. So because of that, we proposed initially to delist the grizzly bear, and, um, that, of course, is a, an action that can be litigated in the courts. It was challenged in the court, and eventually the court overturned the, the delisting of grizzly bears because of concerns about the declines of whitebark pine, which were thought to be a crisis, an important issue for grizzly bears, um, and uh, therefore the delisting was not occurring. So at that point... And into the time, I retired in 2016, up until that time, we had a pretty good system in place to understand the science about grizzly bears, how many bears there were, you know, were they reliant on whitebark pine for survival, which they were not. 
Um, and there were good regulatory mechanisms in place at the federal and state level and commitments to do the right thing if the Endangered Species Act didn't apply anymore. And so that's why, you know, we proposed to delist because of the fact that we had met the recovery goals and there were commitments on all the federal and state agencies to do the right things if they were no longer listed. But then you changed your mind and you opposed the delisting. Well, I, I began to change my mind in the 2019-2020 period when we began to see the legislatures in at least Idaho and Montana beginning to legislate laws which were really uh, detrimental to grizzly bears. And what they were doing is promoting laws that were going to result in the death of grizzly bears on the landscape and make it impossible for the fish and game departments to regulate mortality to sustainable levels. And so for many years, we had biological systems in place where the decisions about how many bears should be there and how we manage mortality, that was all being decided by biologists in the fish and game agencies and at the federal level. But what was happening then was we saw intervention of politicians into these decisions. They began eroding the ability for professionals to make decisions based on science and fact. And that is what made me change my mind that I don't think at this point that the adequate regulatory mechanisms are in place now because of the interference of politicians in the in the management of grizzly bears. So what are the landscape places where grizzlies ought to be present but they're not found at the present time? Well, a good example of that is the intervening habitat between the Yellowstone ecosystem and the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, which is the place where those two populations could connect. Um, we'd like to see those populations eventually have some level of connection because that would make them more genetically healthy and resilient. We'd like to see the Bitterroot ecosystem occupied. There's a, an ecosystem that's identified in the recovery plan where we were going to reintroduce bears but that reintroduction was never funded, so we haven't done that. So there's a large block of grizzly habitat in northeast Idaho and extreme western Montana in the Bitterroot that should have grizzly bears in it. And then the North Cascades, which is another uh, ecosystem that was identified in the recovery plan uh, where there are no grizzly bears today. And there's consideration right now to reintroduce bears into the North Cascades. Yeah. What, to contri what do uh, grizzly bears contribute to a complete ecosystem? Well, they're, you know, grizzly bears are part of the landscape of the northern Rockies. Um, we call them northern Rockies here, of course, southern Rockies in Canada. Grizzly bears are an important aspect of the full ecological representation of animals on the landscape. You know, do they have any actual purpose for things in the landscape? Well, sure, they... You know, they do a lot of digging, and in their digging, they actually move nutrients around and provide nutrient cycling in the alpine, many areas where they dig and feed on roots and tubers. You know, they're, they're a balance on the, on the numbers of animals, numbers of potential prey species. You know, it's important to have predators on the landscape to balance the needs of carnivores and their prey so that the two species are in balance. Remember, these animals lived across this landscape since the last glaciation, 10 to 12,000 years ago. And it was a dynamic and healthy ecosystem uh, representing a full suite of species. 
the reason that we have the problems we have now with reduced numbers of species like grizzly bears is because of human activities on the landscape that have reduced their numbers. So, you know, healthy ecosystems have a full complement of all the species that were there before humans began to intervene and change their numbers in their habitat. Do you think that uh, Montana should have a minimum number for its grizzly population? Well, it's hard to say, you know, what that number would be. I, I don't know that there's a minimum number. Right now, in Montana has more grizzly bears than any other state outside of Alaska, probably about fourteen to 1,500 grizzly bears in Montana. And, um, you know, that number may change a little bit as the populations increase a little bit, but by and large, they're not going to change a lot. The population that we have in Montana today is, is pretty healthy by and large. Um, the reason that we can't delist populations is not because of the numbers of bears. It's because of the regulatory mechanisms that are being interfered with by political interference at this point. Do you think that the... So it's important, let, me, let me add one thing to that. It's important to remember that recovery of animals like grizzly bears is not just the number of animals on the landscape. Yeah. It is the regulatory system that's required to assure that those numbers will remain after the Endangered Species Act no longer applies. Yeah. And we have to have adequate habitat and continued careful management of that habitat so the bears have places to live. So recovery is not just the numbers of animals on the landscape. It's the habitat. It's the regulatory mechanisms at the state and federal level where we have commitments to assure that these animals will continue to exist on the landscape. Do you think that the interstate highway system disrupts the potential for connectivity between the various grizzly populations, particularly in Montana? Well, to some extent, grizzly bears have a challenge crossing all highways where there's lots of traffic. And, um, you know, if there are opportunities to put in crossing structures where animals could go underneath the highways in big culverts, you know, those are beneficial to get animals across the highway. We know grizzly bears have, you know, been blocked by interstates. We've seen bears with, with radio cars on that have walked along the highway and refused to cross because of all the traffic. We also know other bears that have actually crossed. So, you know, in the big picture of a healthy grizzly population, looking at opportunities for animals to move across highways and implementing those is important to maintaining not only healthy grizzly bears, but all the animals that need to cross these really busy routes. You know, elk, deer, moose, all these animals are killed in, in vehicle collisions. And so we need to give the, the animals a break by putting in crossing structures where they're needed. So there is, at the present time, some advocates for delisting. What do you think the prospects are for that to happen? I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know that I can project yeah. what's going to happen there. I mean, that's something I, I just don't know about the future and what will happen. Well, Martha Williams is the head of the Fish and Wildlife Service now, and uh, do you have any ideas what will influence the way she comes out on that decision? Well, in theory... The decision should be based on, based on science and facts. It should not be based on politics and political pressures. Uh -huh. So if you look at facts related to grizzly bears, the populations by and large are healthy right now. But there are concerns about the adequacy of regulatory mechanisms at the state level because of interference of state legislators getting into biology and trying to manipulate 
biological decisions at the state level, and there are concerns about habitat management, particularly by the Forest Service, where we have an increasing interest in developing recreation on public lands. And um, this recreation, in many cases, can displace bears and move them out of places that they want to be as they try and avoid people. So I think these issues related to increased public land development for recreation and political interference at the state level with uh, management of mortality provide serious impediments to potentially delisting grizzly bears. If the grizzly bear were delisted, would there be hunting regulations that uh, set the limit for the number of bears that could be taken? There might be. And, um, you know, there's interest in hunting by a very small proportion of the public. There's people that are interested in hunting grizzly bears. Grizzly bears can be hunted in a real limited way in certain areas where there's really good biological data on how many bears are out there and what a sustainable number would be that could be taken with a hunt. So, you know, it's possible to have a hunt and still have a healthy grizzly population, but everybody needs to recognize that that is going to be a very low number, just a handful of bears that would ever be available for hunting. The threat with hunting is more related to excessive hunting outside of areas where you don't have a lot of information on bears. And for example, you know, trying to kill bears in places that are not in conflict with people just because Somebody doesn't want them there. That kind of thing is really not a sustainable way to hunt grizzly bears, and it's not a sustainable way to manage grizzly bear populations. So that's a matter for concern right now. Uh, The state of Montana has put out a draft grizzly bear management plan, and there is in that plan the um, potential to go and kill grizzly bears on the landscape that are not in conflict with people just because people don't like them. And I don't think that that's an appropriate way to treat the Montana state animal, and that should not be happening. Montana has some pretty liberal trapping laws, and there are proposals in the legislature right now that would uh, even make trapping even more accessible. I've heard that uh, grizzly bears have been caught in some traps or have been injured. Uh, how do you so? How do you feel about the trapping laws? Well. The the trapping you're talking about is trapping, particularly trapping for wolves and um, other species with bait in grizzly bear habitat. Now, if you trap in grizzly bear habitat with bait and you want to avoid conflicts with grizzly bears, you should do it during the time the grizzly bears are in the den between January 1st and March 15th. Almost all the bears are in the den at that time. So if you do those kinds of things where grizzly bears are, during that time period, the bears in the den, you're going to have minimum levels of bears captured. But again, the legislature has interfered with good science by stating that these trapping activities can take place when bears are still out of the den. And so if you trap or snare, which are wire snares that are supposed to catch animals around the head and the neck, in places where grizzly bears are, and you use bait, which is what these people in the legislature have promoted, then you're going to catch grizzly bears, and the potential is that grizzly bears can be injured or killed by this trapping. So if trapping is going to occur in grizzly bear habitat and snaring, it should be done when the bears are in the den, between January 1st and March 15th. Does it matter that uh, trapping is pretty cruel to the animals that are caught? Well, that's a value judgment that 
some people would have that they object to the idea of trapping in general. You know, from a science point of view, what I'm concerned about is the fact that when you catch an animal like a grizzly bear in a trap, and you're a trapper, you have no ability to get that animal out of that trap without killing it. If the animal escapes by pulling the trap away, he's going to walk around with the trap on his foot until it cuts off his toes and he loses part of his toes or part of his foot. And neck snares, um, we've had at least two grizzly bears that we know have been caught in neck snares. They were set for wolves. And these snares can be lethal. They can kill the bear either initially when they're strangled or if they break the snare and walk off with it so the snare is around its neck. Mm-hmm. It will eventually kill the bear through a really long and gruesome process. Well, Chris, uh, thank you very much. We are out of time, but I really appreciate your telling us about that situation today. So uh, thank you again. Well, it's nice talking to you. I appreciate the opportunity to visit. I hope people learn something about bears. Great. Our guest today has been Chris Servine, retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as its grizzly bear recovery coordinator. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.